the evidence of the eyewitness testimony within the Gospels is overwhelming. There is no doubt that the modern church in America has failed its people by not teaching them the earliest stages of church history. Apostolic succession paved the way to preserve the New Testament text. Welcome to another episode of Facts. I'm your host, Stephen Boyce, and here's my co-host, Tyler West. We are to finally, finally, finally. together <laughs> in the new studio. Thank you for joining this episode. And not just finally to the studio, finally to finishing the episode. Right. Because it's been a few weeks since we've been able to actually get together and try to finish part three. And thanks to those in the comments already coming in saying, let's go. Thank you for your jump in and your support. Those that are in the audience, always feel free if you're on the YouTube live to just like and subscribe and leave comments and feedback. And if we don't get to them ever in a show, we'll come behind them later on as well. Well, today we're going to be doing part three. We are discussing the letters of Ignatius. We've already covered five of those letters, which we find to be very important and instrumental. And the goal of this, Tyler, has been to really take these concepts and apply it to the modern church. And we've learned quite a bit about the modern church, the modern era, and how we have done everything seems to be backward, opposite. So kind of take a minute and, and brief us in on how impactful letters like this are to the modern church, why we need to read them more, spend time with them, and then we'll jump right into Smyrna and to Polycarp. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's fascinating to me that we have this wealth of research that gives us insight to how the early church operated and how they functioned and the things that they were super concerned about. And so we've got these letters that give very practical, very straightforward in instrumental um, advice and direction from a bishop who is, a, you know, the, the, the leader in, in, in the church. And he's telling us how the, the Christians are supposed to live their day-to-day -day life. And, and as, as great as scripture is and is amazing and, and, you know, it's got everything we need for, for, for life and salvation. Absolutely. But we lack insights on the day-to-day -day workings of the church. And here we have Ignatius being so close to, to the, the disciples, only, only two disciples, you know, removed from, from Peter. You've, you've got one guy in between you, Peter, the Bishop, and then you've got one other guy, and then you've got Ignatius. He's so close that his insight really is invaluable into giving us the day-to-day -day life of the church and showing us, how we're supposed to respond in certain situations, especially when it comes to to heresy and and, and church unity, and how the bishopric and, the, and the, the church structure is supposed to operate, and how the the church was unified, and and so it's got a lot of really practical stuff. So if you ever ask yourself what was the early church doing, mm -hmm. these letters give a very clear example of what it was like to live in the first century church. You, we don't have to guess; we've we've got it in these documents. Yeah, and I think that's the most important part is that. We do have a lot with scripture. Mm -hmm. We have all that we need that pertains to life and godliness when it comes to our doctrine, what to believe, but things become distant from us 2000 years later. We don't understand the practicalities. Like Paul might say something instructive, but we don't know exactly what that means in, in the year 2000 that his audience would have assumed knowledge of because they're living in that time. Whereas somebody like Ignatius, who is trained under the tutorage of Peter and John, he was a bishop in Peter's church in Antioch. He would have been able to describe something maybe more full, more, more clearly that we're like, oh, that's probably what Paul was saying then in the passage. 
in the book of Ephesians, or that's what he was saying when he was instructing the church at Thessalonica. And so that's why we think it's beneficial for everyone in the church to go back. We have so many English translations of even texts like this. They're free. I mean, you can go online. You can you can download them for free They're on multiple websites, read the letters, read what they're teaching, and you'll be surprised at how how much it actually helps your knowledge of the scripture. And they're super and see, easy to read. Yeah, yeah super they're not easy. hard. Yeah. Uh, very quick uh, into the text today. We're going to start with his letter to Smyrna. The, the church particularly, because both are technically written to the Smyrna area, the leader and the congregation. Polycarp being the leader, a disciple of the Apostle John, a companion. They seem to be very close. They seem to be good friends. But he writes to the church first, and he ends all of his letters by writing to, uh, to Polycarp second. We kind of see his view of the church of Smyrna, and they had a positive review even in the book of Revelation. Smyrna was a persecuted church. They were under a lot of distress. Uh, they were given a lot of threats. And it's no wonder that Polycarp was sent the gentle, kind soul that he is. It seems to be so encouraging that John would send him to an area like Smyrna to help that. And eventually to his own martyrdom. Mm -hmm. And he says this to the church. He says, for I detected that you were filled out with an unshakable faith. Now, that's important to note if they're a persecuted church. Their faith is known by all the other churches and bishops as unmovable, unshakable, something that has foundation, it's rooted, being nailed, as it were, body and soul to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and being rooted in the love by the blood of Jesus Christ. So right there, what we see from him is that the Smyrnans were a people of faith who did not rely upon circumstances, events, finances, prosperity, or the lack thereof. It was solely based on they were as stable as Christ's hands were stable to a cross by nails. Yeah. What, what a powerful statement. Like, they were rooted in something deeper than materialism. So kind of talk about their faith here. I think that's a, a wonderful compliment, similar to the compliment Jesus gave them in the book of Revelation. Well, I think, I mean, if you think about Jesus on the cross, and it's it's hard to say, you know, Jesus had faith because he's he's God, and so it, it almost doesn't work that way. But he nailed himself to the cross. He, he allowed himself to be nailed. He allowed all that thing to go because he knew the plan and the purpose of of, of his father, God. Yep. And and so when you look at Ignatius telling telling the, the church in Smyrna that, that you have a faith that is that is nailed, it's like it's nailed to the cross of Lord Lord Jesus Christ— they're saying it's so unmovable that you have the same determination, you have the same dedication to the cause as Jesus had to his cause on the Christ. And there's not a higher compliment to your dedication to the faith um, and being rooted in the love of the blood of Christ. It's it's this rootedness in the sacrifice and being content in persecution and knowing that there is a greater greater thing that's being accomplished for the kingdom here, even in the midst of persecution. So when, when Ignatius tells them that that's the kind of people you are, I mean, that's the highest compliment he could have paid them. Yeah. So their faith is unshakable in that way, but then he goes into their love. Their love is based out of Christ's blood, which teaches us the greatest love of all. No greater love can a man have than this. They laid down his life for his friends. So they were a sacrificing church. Mm -hmm. And I find that ironic. And anytime we see this in the New Testament, we also see it here. A church is under high persecution. They are the most giving, sacrificial, loving, and selfless congregation you're going to find. Yep. And it seems like, so if Ignatius is writing this, let's just say within 15 to 20 years of the book of Revelation, which I think it might even be 10 to 15. 
if he's writing this around that time, the church has continued to follow the instruction of Jesus. And, and, and we got to put ourselves in this, in this position, folks. When you're thinking about the apostle John within 20 years writing to this church, Jesus himself had a message for this church just 20 years ago. Most of the congregants were alive and, and, and there and can remember when John was on the island of Patmos. He was writing down the visions he received. The book of Revelation is fresh off the press. Right. One of the letters of the seven churches that were receiving this was this one. And they would have been remembering that at great length. And it's amazing that they took the instruction of Jesus and within 15, 20 years, they're not just doing what he said. They're thriving. Mm -hmm. Cause not all of them did. Right. We find that that was the case. Right. And I think a lot of that has to do with their leader, which we're going to get to him. I think a good leader sets the tone for the church. And I think Polycarp is instrumental in doing that. But like most good churches, they have problems. They have to deal with problems. And docetism was once again permeating that area. So he has to confront docetism head on in this letter. And he has to defend that Jesus did. And it's, it's interesting. He says, uh, your faith is like Jesus being nailed to a cross, which is an image of a physical man being nailed to a physical cross, right. bleeding physical blood where the love of the church comes from. So he makes no secret message in this by stating that he is fighting against a doctrine that dismisses a physical bodily Jesus. Mm -hmm. He doesn't name it. And we're going to get into why he doesn't in a minute, but he defends the bodily life, passion and resurrection. He says, regarding our Lord, you are absolutely convinced that on the human side, he was actually sprung from David's line. Meaning this man was a real man. He had physical bloodline. Son of God, according to God's will and power, actually born of a virgin, baptized by John to this physical water, a physical man putting him in the physical water, that all righteousness might be fulfilled by him, and actually crucified for us in the flesh under a physical governor, Pontius Pilate, and Herod the Tetrarch. So, he makes no mistake, and he goes on, and we won't read the whole thing. He goes how he was physically crucified, he was physically buried, he was physically resurrected from the dead, he was physically experienced by those. He drank beverages with the apostles after the resurrection. He ate physical food with the apostles after the resurrection. He was touched by the physical apostles, which corresponds with 1 John, that which we have seen, that which we have touched, John 1, 1 John, all talking about the physicality of that. Mm -hmm. We've seen, we've touched, we've handled uh, we know who he was. We experienced him bodily. So clearly docetism is, is being targeted here. Right. And we don't really, we say we don't struggle with that in our modern age, but I've debated mysticists who don't even believe Jesus was real. And some that believe that Paul actually had conversion, they don't deny hallucinations and things like that. Well, he saw something. It changes the whole world. We don't have docetism today, but we do have a denial of the bodily existence of Jesus, not to the sense of docetism. But we do see that docetism in its early stages was corrupting a lot of the churches because people that were eyewitnesses were dying off. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know if Ignatius was an eyewitness. He could have been that child that we talked about right. that Jesus held. But he did know those who had opportunities to touch, feel, and experience Jesus in the flesh. And he believes it with convincement, and his audience that he's addressing here does as well. And, and one of the things that I think that we, we find here is a concerned bishop 
for a church that's not in docetism, but concern that after he's gone may become toxic and that docetism would make itself in. And, and, and we had already seen a battle with Serinthianism where John the Apostle himself confronted Serinthian in the person according to stories of Irenaeus. But here we find a concerned bishop. Why do you think, if they already have a bishop, does he see the need to warn them about a doctrine that's going to come in? Why does he feel the need to warn them when they're not in it? But as a good leader, he's defining almost in a creed way. Mm-hmm these things. To me, this is creedal. What do you think? I completely agree. And I, I think you, you see it in every single one of his letters. He's very creedal in his language. He's, I, I think this is maybe the fourth letter he's talked about was actually crucified, was actually buried, was actually raised. He's actually from David's line. He used the word actually or, yeah, or genuinely a, a ton throughout <laughs> all of his letters. Um, and so I think he's, he's setting this precedence of this is the standard of belief in Jesus Christ and anything apart from that is is outside as heresy it's, it's a heretical thing and, and you made a comment you know that we don't necessarily we don't we don't have that issue as rampantly it's in some circles but but what docetism did and it's in its essence was it redefined who jesus was and made it more palatable to believe and while we don't have people saying well he didn't really exist we do have people saying well he was a great teacher mm-hmm. he wasn't god but he was a, he was a great teacher so it's almost like the modern era has taken the stance it's same mindset and mission of docetism to to water down who jesus was to change some of his essence to make it more palatable to make it more believable to take some of the mysticism out of it um and so while we don't have that direct issue it's still very rampant to take who jesus actually was and to take some of his characteristics and change them and try to make them something that is easier to believe and and the same principle applies. So it may not be called docetism it may have a different faith that you know might have some traces of gnostic beliefs in it but it's all still attacking the character and person of Jesus the exact same way. And, and, and Ignatius is very adamantly going, no, Jesus was who he was. He really was crucified. He really was God. He really was, you know, hung on the cross. He was persecuted. He was all these things. And if you stray from this core doctrine, this creedal doctrine that he was trying to force on these people, then, then you have missed the truth of who Christ is. Yeah. And that's the point of a creed. Mm-hmm. It, rehashes in a world of a lot of illiteracy. Mm-hmm. You're talking about a, most churches are filled with illiterate people that can't read. Creeds were protection for the illiterate at that time. I believe in God, the father almighty creator of heaven and earth. I mean, these are the things, the apostles creed, which you're studying currently, and we'll eventually get to it on this program and go through the creeds. I'm teaching it at my church. You're teaching it at your church. Um, we're going through creeds and we're talking about the importance of creeds. These were protections. And all he's doing is rehashing probably something they had already established. Why else would he go through the baptism, Mm -hmm. the virgin birth, Pontius Pilate? I mean, he goes through all of these things, like you said, from multiple times now. Mm -hmm. But he also sees these these people who are looking at him saying, wow, Ignatius is about to face wild beasts. He's like, no, no, you are. Right. You're going to be facing wild beasts. Note what he says in chapter four. I urge these things on you, my friends. And I love how he's not a dominating bishop. He's not uh, hierarchical to the sense of like where he's exercising, flex, flexing muscles of of power and things like that. Reminds me a lot of Paul to, to very to close. Philemon. Yeah, he's like, I, I, I urge you out of love. Yeah, for love's sake. For love's sake. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's do this. Uh, and, and that shows that he doesn't have an agenda. He has relationships, mm-hmm. which is very, very important. Huge for, difference. For those of that are watching this, that are or listening to this on the podcast, you need to recognize the importance of your role as a leader is to 
lead the flock of God and work toward their best interest. It's relationships. You can't do that at a distance. You we, have to do that. We'll get into that in Polycarp. There's some of oh, that yes. language in there. And, and it's that intimacy and that relationship that creates that trust and stability. But he says, my friends, although I am well aware that you agree with me. He's like, I, I know I'm not telling you something you don't know and don't agree with. But I warn you in advance against the wild beasts in human shapes. You must not only refuse to receive them, but if possible, you must avoid meeting them. Just pray for them that they may somehow repent, hard as that is, yet Jesus Christ, our genuine life, has the power to bring it about. This is something that I, I found interesting in his correspondence to the church here. He's telling them, he didn't say don't pray for them, mm -hmm. because it's apparent to me that the individuals who have fallen into this were friends. They're not just mystical people, like there's this mystical religion going out there, you haven't seen it yet. They know people that have fallen into this. They become victims yep. of docetism. He's, he, his point is, is, look, just abstain. Don't let them in the church. Don't let them around. Don't let them come in and, and bring toxicity into the place. But pray for them. And, and though he says, though that seems like an impossible task that they would come to repentance, he says, we believe in a Jesus Christ who brings genuine life and has the power to make it happen. And I think that we try too much to out-intellect people in error. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's nothing more we can do except sit back and pray right. and trust Christ has the ability to do the convincing of truth because he has true, genuine life in his teachings. He is the one that is able to make a real conversion. And that really takes a lot of pressure off of us. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to like get into a whole side theological uh -oh. conversation here, but it, he says, yet Jesus Christ, and he kind of he is almost making a point our genuine life it's it's almost like an implication that the only reason that we have that belief is the genuine life that jesus christ has given us and so he's saying put it in the hands of the one that yep is also has also given you understanding and clarity and understanding of, of who jesus is put it in his hands and let him do it and that i think it's it's so good it's it's that section where it says as hard as it is to believe because there's so many people or so many sections of of, of church belief that it's it's almost unthinkable that they would come to repentance and and Ignatius here is, is sympathizing with this. Yes. It's like as hard as it is to believe, Jesus may still bring about a change in their life. So it's it's one of those things that even the ones that are the hardest to reach or the ones that seem the most outlandish would ever come to repentance, we still need to be actively praying for those people because even as hard as it is to believe, Jesus Christ, the one who gave us genuine life, has the power to bring it about. Yeah, I don't think the mentality of the hell with them is the way to go. No. I, it's 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 to grieve. And I think mm -hmm. he's giving them room to do that, to grieve people that have fallen into error. But you have to be careful not to let your emotional connection to them. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I mean, a little bit can ruin the whole thing. And when we're talking about an entity like the church, the very thing Christ's blood purchased, we have to guard ourselves. Mm -hmm. there, there's certain things that have no compromise in them. And I'm not against being amicable I'm not saying we go out and become public jerks. Uh, that's not the identity we see being placed on this church. But at the same time, there is a line drawn where he tells them, don't even don't don't commune with them. They shouldn't be taking Eucharist with you. They shouldn't be teaching in your church. And honestly, if they're unrepentive, they should have been put outside the church. And I know that's hard for our modern era to think of because we've got to be nice to everybody. But the church is, is not a club. It's not a place, folks, where we can just 
you know, well, for we just want to love everybody. He, nowhere do I see in here where he says, don't love people. No. In fact, I see the opposite. Mm-hmm. But the church is not a place that we get to just uh, be le- uh, flexible and loose and everything on. We, we have to take a stand. And, and it's interesting, the doctrine itself, he refuses to call it by name. He says in chapter five, the names of these people, seeing they are unbelievers based on their actions, right. I am not going to write down. See, again, this is why I believe that he, he, they know these individuals. They know who they are. They know they exist. And he's saying, I'm not going to write down. One, he's assuming they already know him. Two, he doesn't want to give them a platform. It's almost as if he knew that one day this letter was going to distribute itself and it was going to be made circular. We see indication of that kind of how he talks to Polycarp later. Mm-hmm. He assumes he's to be circulated. He doesn't even want to give them a platform. He doesn't even want to acknowledge who they are. He says, no far, being it from me, even to recall them until they repent, acknowledge the passion, and I love that, mm-hmm. which means our resurrection. Because the passion is not just the suffering of Christ. It ends in the resurrection of Christ. So his point is, is if they can't acknowledge the passion of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, that means they're denying our physical resurrections. And if they're going to deny our physical resurrections, there's no point in carrying on conversations and giving them credit to anything that they have to say. Rather, we know who they are. You know who they are. Let's pray for them. Let's pray for repentance. Because until they come to repentance and acknowledge that the, the physical body of Jesus was crucified on a physical cross by a physical governor, placed in a physical tomb, and physically came out of that tomb and physically presented himself to his followers and his eyewitnesses, we have nothing to talk about. Mm, he says if they don't believe in the passion, that their passion is a sham. It says, <laughs> yes. it, it's chapter two, it's, it's not as some believers say that his passion was a sham. It's they who are a sham. Yes, and their fate will fit their fancies. So if they don't believe in the resurrection, then he's almost, they will have no resurrection. They will have no life in Christ. And that's it. very pointed. Yeah, very but yet it's kind of loving at the same time because he doesn't say the hell with them. He says, let's pray for them so they don't go to hell. I mean, like, let's right. get them, let's pray for them and trust that God can do. He does say to pray for them after he calls them a sham. So it's in, it's in it's fair. There. Yeah, it's, it's fair. fair. <laughs> he, he, he supplemented his statement beforehand. <laughs> right. But looking into how this continues into the Eucharist, and he, and he kind of gets into the idea that this downplays our identity and our community our communities communion with Christ. So he warns against anyone who denies the passion of Christ is in a sense, denying real presence mm-hmm. in the Eucharist, which forgive us again to our friends who believe that the Eucharist or the communion Lord's supper, whatever term you use is merely symbolic. Clearly that was not the position of the early church, especially men like Ignatius who knew John the apostle and was a successor of Peter. They clearly believe something was special and intimate about the moment in Eucharist. This is what he had to say in chapter six going, six going into seven. They care nothing about love. They have no concern for widows or orphans, for the oppressed, for those in prison or released, for the hungry, or the thirsty. They hold aloof or distance from the Eucharist and from service of prayers because they refuse to admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which in his goodness, the Father raised from the dead. The right thing to do then is to avoid such people and to talk about them neither in private nor in public. And and it's not just an issue of Eucharist. It's an issue of public service to the community. Mm-hmm. Because if, if physical matters mean nothing, 
and physicality, all physical matter is evil. And who cares about the widow and the, the widows and the orphans and the people that are struggling and suffering? What, what, who cares about those people? Um, the churches were known for being a people that spent time with the undesirable outcasts of mm -hmm. society. They are the ones taking in the orphans. They're the ones providing for the widows. Docetism wasn't doing that apparently. Right. And they're denying, and he says all of this is hinged on, it's because they deny the Eucharist. They deny the bodily presence. They deny the real presence of Christ in the elements. And as a result of denying those things, it changes the way they view their neighbor. Which, how do you see these things tied? Eucharist, real presence, changes the way you think about orphans, widows, hurting people, sick people. Why do you think he connects these two things? Because if, if, you, if you take Docetus' principles that all flesh is evil— and that really it's a spiritual thing, and, and the, the spiritual matter is all that matters. Physical life can't be good is why they deny that Jesus actually came, because if he's God and he's good and he's, he's he can't be flesh because all flesh is evil. And then you start to, when you think of all flesh as being evil, then you don't care about your fellow flesh around right. you. You don't care about your fellow human because it's all inherently evil, and the only thing you're going to focus on is your own spiritual goodness and your own self-centered goodness because it's all spiritual, and you're going to fight to to enhance that spirituality, but you don't care about the physical around you and all the physical needs around you don't matter anymore. And so it, it leads to this snowball of bad theology and where you neglect everybody around you. It's interesting to me. And I, I don't know if, the, if you guys do this at the gathering uh, at the Anglican church you're in, but we take time after doing Eucharist at Harvest Anglican to uh, send us out after we do the Eucharist, it sends us out to proclaim uh, the kingdom, uh, to be the very body of Christ. The Eucharist almost should motivate us, having met with Christ at his table, to go out and do something. And, and it's interesting that even in the New Testament, when we see the, the, the motivation of Paul to the Corinthians with the Eucharist, what was the issue? Wrongly using the table led to wrongly handling sin in the church mm -hmm. and fighting, quarreling, and division. It's incredible to me that the foundation of the early church, the foundation and root of their practices began in their communion with Christ in the Eucharist. It was a sending point for everything they everything. did. Everything. Mm -hmm. And we miss that. Mm -hmm. I think the modern church misses that. Those listening... I'm not here to criticize maybe a minister or those that go to a church that maybe do Eucharist or communion once every four months or something like that. But it is a challenge. It's not meant to be a criticism, but it is meant to be a challenge. And we both would challenge you. Mm -hmm. Think deeply about the early church. Why is it that this was a spring to shoot them forward out of their communities to enhance the gospel to the widow, to the orphan, to the sick, the way they prayed for people. I think that we've lacked these things in our modern culture because we see it as, if it's just mere symbolism, what motivation is there to it? But if you physically and bodily met with Christ, that should change the way you leave that gathering mm -hmm. to do the very things that are here. Because what, what does the Eucharist teach? Christ gave himself for us. He imparted to us something we didn't deserve, grace. He forgave us. He died in our place. He sacrificed himself for those who could not help themselves. Yep. That's what he did. 
And, and if we walk away from the Eucharist without having any motivation to do those things, then we have totally missed the intentionality in the institution of Christ and his, what, what did Jesus do? I mean, he washes his disciples' feet when he institutes this and he tells them to go do it to others. Mm -hmm. So there is a connectivity here and we see um, elements of that here in the early church. I think it's ironic too that you, you see in early church practice that they would they would have these corporate times of, of worship and Eucharist and then immediately following the service, the deacons would go and take the Eucharist to the widows and the orphans and the people that needed out in the service. So when you neglect the Eucharist regularly, you're not going regularly to those people and influencing sure. their life and being a part of them. So even in the way that, that the early church, you know, distributed the Eucharist, it was always centered on, we're going to, we're going to give it to those that are here and we're going to go and distribute it to the people that can't make it. The people that are, that are in those kind of things. So it's, it's kind of a double, you're, you're missing it on two different levels. So that's, that's our challenge. You're missing out in our opinion. Mm -hmm. And we don't say that is guilt. We say that is do your investigation and, and ask yourself the question. Right. Why are the early churches who knew the apostles having such a high view? And maybe, maybe you don't change your view of real presence. Maybe that's you and that's fine, but maybe it will change the frequency. Maybe it'll change the way you think through the, the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the motivation that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. If that's the least that comes from this, from our challenge, Hey, we'll see you at a coffee table soon or something like right. that. I mean, we're not mad about it, but no, it is not. something to think about mm -hmm. for sure. Now within that, he goes into division. That's the issue in the schism and, and division. That's the issue in all of these letters, mm -hmm. all of them. And so when we deal with the letters, we're going to not focus on it in Smyrna. Let's move over to Polycarp because he deals with it with Polycarp too. Schism and division is the concern of the apostles in the New Testament over and over. <laughs> be unified, be one body, one spirit, one mind. Why are you divided? Questions like that. Same issues. Division has been the problem in the church for 2000 years and it's going to continue on as, as humans are involved because we all have different opinions, different perspectives, different ideas. He's worried about them falling into error doctrinally and falling into division inwardly. Mm -hmm. And so when he writes his letter to Polycarp, particularly and specifically, he wants to get into the Christian practice. What all the things we just talked about. He says, make unity your concern. Now he's writing to another bishop. He's giving kind of the last will and testaments. He knows he's going to die. Everybody knows it. What's the last thing he would say to his best friend who he trained with, who he spent time with John with, both leading churches of John and Peter? What's the last thing? What's the first thing he would say to him? The first thing he says, make unity your concern. There's nothing better than that. Lend everybody a hand as the Lord does you. Out of love, be patient with everyone, as indeed you are. Not So he, we learned a little bit about the character of Polycarp, and we kind of see this in his letters. He's a very gentle, mm -hmm. kind individual. He says, you are already doing this, but keep going. Devote yourselves to continual prayer. Ask for an increasing insight. Be ever on the watch by keeping your spirit alert. Take a personal interest in those who talk to you just as God does bear the diseases of everyone like an athlete in perfect form. The greater the toil, the greater the gain. I mean, folks, we, we could do a whole episode right. just 
tearing down this one paragraph. Such a beautiful thing. Let's let's tear this down slowly. Make unity your concern um, and, and, and lend people a hand the way the Lord lends a hand to you. Start there. Whew. That's a... It is powerful. It's powerful. I get excited. Folks, I get excited. I think this. it's also the origin of no pain, no gain. <laughs> I think I think we can throw that out there. In perfect it. form, like an athlete. <laughs> greater right. toil, greater the gain. Right. I think it's perfect. That should be on a T-shirt. Um, we'll wear them next time. We'll, right. we'll get them made up. Perfect. Um, no, I think unity and, and a heart for unity solves almost all of the church's problems. If we have a heart for unity, if we have a heart for one another, we have a heart for being unified over doctrine, being unified over the pursuit of the kingdom of God and the heart and a heart for unity over, over the people that solves almost everything. And so when I think about what, what's something that I would write to my best friend, it's the first thing I say is going to be the most important thing yes, of all, all I could say, if I'm going to lead with something, I'm going to make it the absolute most important thing that I want to leave behind and leave an imprint. And he says, unity, Make unity your concern. Mm. Not just keep an eye open for unity. Make sure you're being unified. It's make unity your concern. There is nothing better than that. A unified body, a unified church, there's nothing better than that. And then he you know, continues to go on and, and show how you, you are unified. But I, I'm convinced that if more people within the church were convinced and, and concerned about the sake of unity, we would not have the schisms we were having. We would, we'd have people that were less prideful and, and, and more concerned about their own way, we'd have people that were more humble because doctrinal issues usually end in some sort of prideful yes, arrogance always, something. Almost always. And so, you know, you see that in debates. It's even if the person is right, the pride will not let you accept their point sometimes. And it's just, it's, it's concerning that there are not more people in the Christian church that are not more concerned with unity. And there's even people that, you know, we've talked about it and and had conversations about, you know, there's some people that even fear the great unity of, of the church and see it as a sign of the end of time. It's <laughs> like, that's, that should be so far removed. If the body is not unified, then it can't accomplish any of the goals that Christ had for it. And so that's, that's, you know, Ignatius's big point is I'm leaving and, and I've had this opportunity to, and it shows that he's had this opportunity to make friends and to yep. make connections with all these different churches and all these different people. And Unity among churches that are not in the same location, not just unity in one congregation. We're talking worldwide unity within the body of believers, the big body, big C church, not just individuals. He's like, make that your concern. You see that Ignatius already had that. Yep. His concern yep. was Polycarp, I need you to kind of pick up this torch like an athlete and continue to run this race of unity because it's that important. Knowing it would be hard. Right. Great toil mm -hmm. is his terminology. And he knows it's going to take patience because he says, out of love, be patient. Mm -hmm. He knows that people are going to be pressing the issue a lot. And that's why he says, with everyone. It cracks me up that in, <laughs> in chapter or little section two, it says, it's no credit to you if you're fond of good peoples, rather by your gentleness, subdue those who are annoying. <laughs> so he's like, even giving you a heads up, like there's some rough people within the church. But even then, it's a, it's a credit to who you are as a leader that you can be graceful and unifying with even those people that cause them issues. Yeah. I mean, we find it easy to like people who like us and like people who we get along with and aren't annoying to us when they become annoying. It's hard to, to, to gain favor with those people because we show it bodily in our expressions. Mm -hmm. Now he also says, devote yourself to continual prayer. Now this is something the Lord has probably gotten a hold of you and I on a lot lately. Yep. The amount of praying we do is minimal. And again, he's talking to another Bishop here. Um, I mean, 
continue. This is praying without ceasing terminology that that Paul had t- uh, talked about and instructed. Act two: devote yourself to prayer. Devoted. Devote yourself to these things, mm-hmm. and then he tells them what to request in that time in their prayer. He says, "Ask for increasing insight. Basically, give us eyes to see, see what, see the needs of others, see the problems, see the errors." Because he he warns, "Be ever on watch by keeping your spirit alert." I mean, isn't this the whole admonition of the New Testament? Be sober, be vigilant, Peter says. Mm-hmm. We have an adversary, the devil's a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Paul talks about be on alert. Jesus says, keep watch. I mean, we see these instructions yep. to be observant, but it takes a person whose mind is in a state of prayer, constantly asking for insight. Lord, give me eyes to see. Am I being lied to? Am I being manipulated? Am I seeing these things happen? These are the things that he's concerned about for his fellow bishop and friend that he would become disillusioned because he's a nice guy. And nice guys get taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want to see his... To me, I see Ignatius more as a go-getter. Yeah. You know, he's more of the Peter and and Polycarp's more of the John, which is probably reflective on their churches. I mean, he's <laughs> in succession to John, uh, mm-hmm. whereas... Ignatius is in succession to Peter. So they kind of have those two. John's kind of quiet, lean back. He's observant. He's a nice guy. Peter's like kind of the jerk that'll just say, I don't care. Get over here. Like, what? I don't care what you think. Do (laughs) do the right thing. You kind of see their personalities Mm -hmm. follow their mentors. And so he doesn't want his friend to be taken advantage of. And, and so he doesn't, and he doesn't tell him to stop taking personal interest in people. He says, take a personal interest in those who talk, who you talk to just as God does, like see people who come to you with concerns. Don't just go, all right, you got 10 minutes. That are, you know, from a ministry perspective, I mean, we were both pastors. Yeah. There's a lot of times you see people for what they can do and accomplish in the church. And you're not taking it. I I love that. It says, you know, take a personal interest in them the same way that God does. So it's not just what can, what can these people do for the church or how can I get them to a different place in the ministry, but taking an actual personal interest in their life and what's going on in their world. That's what he's telling them to do just the same way that God does. That's that's a, we don't want to ever use people, you know? Uh, we see talent, we see skill, our perspective be to use people. Not taking interest in them, but their talent. Mm-hmm. And that's easy to do in a time of desperation because right. they probably needed all hands on deck. Right. Anybody they could get involved needed to be involved. Mm-hmm. And then he says, bear the diseases of everyone like an athlete in perfect form, the greater the toil, the greater the gain. I, I, um, I don't like that. I don't like that either. <laughs> like, I mean, that doesn't mean like if they're highly contagious, go get their, you know, sickness. Right. I don't, I don't think that's the, the point. What, what do you think he's motivating him to do there? Obviously it's not, Hey, if somebody, you know, has a highly contagious disease, just go over there and be stupid. Like, I don't think that's what he's saying. No, I, I really feel like that's, that's getting in the dirt with people. Yeah, like their yep. diseases is, is is you know their sin, their their sickness. Um, you can't be a good leader within the church if you're not willing to, you know, take any any topic and discuss it. Like we don't need to have barriers of politeness when it comes to people's sin issues. We don't need to have weird things that are off limits to talk to. And you know, be safe about certain yeah, subjects and do it in the right way. But no matter what issue, one of the people in your congregation, one of the people that you're friends with comes to you there should be unity and fellowship and friendship that there are no off-limits conversations 
because people are dealing with with wicked things in their life, and, and there's a lot of people that don't want to deal with that, but they don't feel confident enough or, or comfortable enough to bring those things to church leaders, the, the people that could give them advice and help them out of it, because there's there's this wall that's built up in our culture because we don't actually have these genuine friendships. And so Ignatius says, bear the diseases of everyone. He's like, get in the mud with those people. Get in there and hear anything they've got to say. Wrestle with them through their their issues and, and help them be well. You you are it's, it's very physician-y kind yes, of language. Yes. Help heal them. Help them get past those things. Um, and do it in a way that is like an athlete in perfect form who's running this race, who's doing it with everything that they've got, that this is part of the race is to take people along with you that are living in this sinful full thing and you're bringing them along with you. He's using Paul's terminology there, without a doubt, when it comes sure. to the running the race. Paul loved using that analogy. He also liked using the Roman soldier in his outfit. And so here's another. So he says, let your baptism be your your arms. Your faith, your helmet, your love, your spear, your endurance, your armor. Let your deeds be your deposits so that you will eventually get back considerable savings. Be patient then and gentle with each other as God is with you. And I love that analogy. He kind of takes it differently than Paul did, but he talks about, I, I, note the two things. Let your baptism be your arm. So another sacrament is brought in that they that, that our baptisms are supposed to be lived out they are something of importance. And I think it goes back to the last part, as God is with you. So our baptism, it teaches us, it's, it's a defense. I mean, that's what he's saying. Our baptism is a defense. Our faith is a helmet. Our love is a spear. Um, and, and it's, <laughs> I find it interesting that he doesn't say your faith is your spear, mm-hmm. almost as a weapon, because <laughs> the only one that, that's here as a weapon is the spear. The rest right. of it is is protective gear. Mm-hmm. So baptism is perspe- in your faith is a protection to your head. Your faith is your mind. It's protecting your head. Your baptism is your arms. Um, and, and, and it's 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 functioning. It, it's causing you to do things. It, it moves you to help bear the right. sick, yeah. do those very things, get in the mud like you talked to, about. To wield your spear. Wield it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. You got to use it to throw, but it's, you're, you're throwing love. Right. So we're, we're like Cupid, you know, we're <laughs> shooting arrows with little hearts on the end of it, but I don't think it's that ridiculous. No, but definitely not. He's clearly teaching that we're killing people with kindness. If you would, I mean, he's kind of using when, these you, when you're, when you're kind to people, it heats, heaps hot coals on their head. Yeah. That's Paul. That's yeah, Romans. Paul. Yeah. yeah. Romans teaches us to do these things. And when we look at, how we equip ourselves. Why are we doing this and how do we do it as God is with you? Mm -hmm. Folks, when we come to the realization and the acceptance that God, when we come to him and we are baptized into him and he has brought his spirit into our lives, we are not alone. We're not doing this alone. It doesn't matter what comes our way. It doesn't matter what we're dealing with. We can do the things that are asked of us because God is with us. Yep. This is what motivated the Old Testament saints. Our, God is with us. Is God with us? Is God in battle? Are we going into battle with God or without God? Because we need to know. Go find a prophet until we find it. Because if he ain't going with us, we're not going into battle. Right, Folks, our battle is guaranteed in this life because of our baptism. We are doing it with God. We are not our own. We're bought with a price. We belong not to our, ourselves. We belong to God. That's Catechism 101. And so we see an encouragement for him to, yes, do these things. But man, you're going to war mm-hmm. and you're going to need God with you 
and you have him with you. Keep doing what you're doing. And so then he gets into the idea of, of dealing with the church and the issues of comfortable living, people that want to get out of persecution because that's the natural thing to do. He says, do not treat slaves and slave girls in a way of contempt, basically. Neither must they grow insolent, but for God's glory, they must give more devoted service so that they may obtain from God a better freedom. And this is similar to Paul's instructions too. Mm -hmm. Moreover, they must not be over anxious to gain their freedom at the community's expense, lest they prove to be slaves of selfish passion. Now, what was happening kind of contextually there is the churches were involved in freeing slaves. Mm -hmm. they, they were big into this. There was entire stories we can find. Um, churches were big on emancipating and they, and then they should be, they should have been the forerunners of this from the very beginning. It should have been the forerunners of this in our own nation. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's what they were doing. Now there were slaves that were not necessarily like in the sense of they were constantly not away, allowed to be in the, the community. They had to serve time and debt. Mm -hmm. And some of the churches were still having slaves come to the congregations and they were doing their best to get them out of these debts to free them. Yeah. More bond servant in some of these. Exactly. And, yeah. and, but in a lot of cases they couldn't do that. These churches are poor. I mean, right. so he's kind of instructing slaves here. He's going <clears> to <throat> instruct marriage couples in a minute. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the slaves. I want to get to that part, but really quick in a breakdown, tell me what you think he's doing here by protecting the church from bankrupting themselves. So I think it's and, and to to not really, I think we we if we dive in too hard into the the slaves concept, we missed what Ignatius is saying because they're obviously very anti-slavery and trying to to remove those people. What he's saying is is moreover they must not be over anxious to gain their freedom, and this is the key part of the whole thing at the community's expense. And so what they're saying is there should never be a group of people or a person that elevates their personal needs in persecution over the needs of the church, and so it's it speaks to this mindset of we want to be out of persecution. The church should be a place that gets us out of persecution. We should never have to live in that. And our, my personal freedom and my personal situations are more important than the kingdom mindset. And so, and and we have that mindset in the church today. The modern church is very, I want to be blessed. I want to be filled. I want to be, be fed every service. Uh, the church is supposed to be here to, to, to do things for me. Yep. If the church isn't feeding me, well then I'm going to go down the road and see if I find another church. And we have this thing. If the church is not doing something for me, then it must not be the real church. And so Ignatius is kind of speaking to that. Don't, don't let them be over anxious to gain their freedom at the community's expense. Don't let them elevate their personal needs over yep. the needs of the church. And he's saying, don't let that, let them, it, it even kind of goes on to explain it. Lest they prove themselves to be slaves of selfish passion. He's saying that slave of, they're, they're not they're, they're our slave but their their true slave is is of selfish passion they're not thinking about the kingdom first and I, I really wanted to highlight there because I think that is the modern church we're not concerned yeah. about the kingdom we're not concerned about the working of the church we're worried about ourselves this whole enlightenment period of the church has been very individualistic yes and and we've got to get back to understanding that we are only here for for a moment we're sojourners we're this is not our home we're, we're, we're aliens god is going to come back and bring this new perfect land we're supposed to be persecuted in this life it's counted all all joy my brothers when you face trials and tribulations it's coming if you yeah. believe in christ you're going to have hardships you're going to have times that are difficult and it's when we start doing woe is me why is god punishing me why are we having this why can't the church help why is the church not doing this for me that we miss that the church is never about you. It's never about an individual. Christ has one bride, yes. not 
a thousand million brides that are all individually, you know, the bride. We're individually important to Christ, and our our I think God grieves for our struggles. Certainly, but the bride is the church, and that is of foremost importance. And he's saying, don't go bankrupt to where you can't focus on the kingdom because you're solving individual needs on too high of a level. Yeah, Christ Christ is the resolver, resolver of your issues, first and foremost, mm-hmm. not the church. He He's the one who can help you more than a church can. I We're not saying a church shouldn't. If it can. It can, it can, but mm-hmm. sometimes it can't. And, and, and most church hopping, because that's what it is, is because somebody got mad at a church because they were going through a tough time and they felt like a person in the church, a leader in the church should have been there for them in a better way possible. And most of the time it's miscommunications. People in the church had no idea. It was not communicated properly or the proper people weren't told about it. Most people hop a church over a giant misunderstanding because they weren't self-served. Right. That's just a reality. And folks, it needs to stop. The church is not in place to serve you. The church is not in the place to serve me. Not that we can't be served, but think about this. If we choose to serve others rather than ourselves, and if everybody does that, no one will go without being served. Right. And in and, and the times it is legitimate, it goes back to the bishop problem where they're not loving and taking an interest in other people. Yes. So there's issues on both ends of this. But if, if the leadership is loving people like Ignatius calls Polycarp to love, and the people are are more sacrificing for the kingdom, then this issue erases itself. It sets the tone for everything. Yep. It starts from the leaders, and that's why he addressed Polycarp first in this. He instructs the church in this. It sets the tone for the whole thing. It's also why there was a multitude of leaders. Lots of leaders. It wasn't ever meant to be one person to do this, and that's why they had the diaconate. The uh, diaconate mm-hmm. was serving uh, everything from sickness to baptism to people that couldn't make it to the gathering to go take the Eucharist to them. I did a whole episode on that. On, on recovering the ancient uh, mm-hmm. deacon and, and what it looks like. They were doing things like that. They were taking off and taking the Eucharist to people who were sick or working and couldn't make it to the gathering that right. day. It's important to note that the church was serving, and we're not saying they shouldn't. We're saying that church hopping happens too much because people didn't get their way or their need met the way they thought. Christ is the main person you need. The church is there to aid in that and be the hands and the feet of Christ. But it's Christ you should be seeking to resolve your problem first and foremost, not a church. Right. Uh, he's the giver. He's the one that does. He can do more than a church anyway, as we saw. He's right. the one that sustains all things. Yep. Another issue that he addressed and felt it was important that Polycarp address is marriages in the church. And we'll take the rest of our time here. He says this, and I love how he entreats the women and the men. He calls them sisters and brothers. Tell my sisters to love the Lord and to be all together content with their husbands. Similarly, urge my brothers in the name of Jesus Christ to love their wives as the Lord loves the church. So let's take that first line. He instructs marriages. He instructs his sisters in Christ, as he calls them. Again, I don't see a dominating leader here. To love the Lord and to find contentment with their husbands. Now, you and I are are men. So we got to be careful in this and we're going to be doing other episodes, by the way, I'm going to be releasing soon. I just talked Tyler about on the way I'm going to be releasing an article soon on blessings and marriage. Since all that controversy has been going on, you can even go back to a few episodes. I had uh, Eric Yabara on here discussing uh, the blessing of same sex marriages. I'm writing and it's almost done. It's going to be done very soon. And I'm also going to be doing a special episode with my wife. So keep your eyes and ears open for that. 
uh, to talk about this very issue. So I don't want to speak for wives here, mm -hmm. but the instructions are to tell my sisters to one, find their love first and foremost in their relationship with the Lord. And, and in doing that, to find a way to be content with their husbands. Um, we're, you know, and kind of speak to that a little bit. Why would he address that? Because human tendency is the same today. It's no different. None. Why do you think he felt the need to instruct women to love the Lord? That's basic. But to find contentment with their husbands, why would he instruct the women to do that? I think first and foremost, like to be content with your husband, you have to love the Lord first because <laughs> sometimes we are not great. We're hard to live with. We're hard to live Very with. Very hard to live with. Um, but I think there's, there's one, you, you got to look at the marriage as, a, as this covenant between God and, and, and man and, and this, it's these, this, the man and wife are coming together to, to do a specific purpose, to live out the, the kingdom, to be this mirror image of, of what Christ is to the church. Um, and it's, marriage is a powerful thing within a, within a family unit. And so he's, he's saying, love the Lord first and foremost, because that's going to give you your satisfaction, satisfaction. I think too many times marriages get broken because the, the, the spouse, man or woman is looking for satisfaction in, in the other person, the other person yes. not in Christ. And so he's, he's really getting the priority straight. He's saying, first love the Lord and then be all together. And he says, all together contented with your husband. It's, it's looking back to that, that first love that you had when you first got together, mm. be reminded of, of that first love and, and be reminded of the things in your relationship and be working together for the good of Christ, because it's a powerful thing to be in that marriage, working together for Christ, both people being um, focused in on, on Christ. Um, there's something beautiful about that picture and that covenant of love that we, that married couples that are focusing on Christ understand the relationship between Christ and the church a little bit differently than, than somebody single, because we get to experience a mirror image of that intimacy. It's very important spiritually for us to have that in our marriage life. Yeah. And then he instructs the husband the same way Paul does to love the wife, the way that the Lord loved the church and you and our husbands. And we uh, do not do that very well. No. Um, I, I appreciate my wife the other day. We're actually, I don't remember when this conversation happened. Claire said something to the effect of like, your job's harder than mine. Cause we're talking about like the, the role of the husband, the role of the wife. She's like, your job's harder than mine. I'm like, thank you for recognizing. <laughs> and I'm just kidding. But, but, but seriously, it's like our standard is, is to love our wives the way Christ loved the church. And that is the picture of the cross. That's self-sacrifice. That is giving to the need of others, despite our exhaustion. I mean, I'm this way. I struggle with this. And I'm sure if my wife listens to this, she's going to be amen in the background. Like when I come home from teaching classes all day, uh, spending time uh, running a business and, and, and doing all the things I'm responsible as a coach, as a teacher, as a, a mentor to people, podcasting, writing blogs, spending time talking to other apologists and doing debates. When I come home, the last thing I want to do is, is exert anything. Mm -hmm. I have nothing, almost nothing right. left sometimes. I just want to sit on my lazy boy and mm -hmm. watch something and just just settle down for the day. But, but we have to sacrifice things. And I think we struggle with that as men, all of us listening that are men, we struggle with that, but that is our standard. And it's not just a suggestion. It's a requirement command. It is a command to do this. 
And uh, and something that, that young men getting into marriage need to understand that you accept this commandment by entering into a marriage. Yeah, it's not like, oh, wait, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. No, it's, <laughs> it's not in the fine print. It's in bold at the top. It's in the bold letters. Right. It's like it's in your description. Lesson like, one. Husband, here's what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you do those things. And, and it's something that we have to constantly repent of, both to our wife, to yes. the Lord. And, you know, the thing is, it shows that human tendencies in 2000 years have not changed. And I think no. we have a much more difficult time with distraction and, and things around us to create this. But then, I mean, he gets into in chapter five on marriage as well. It is right for men and women who married to be united with the Bishop's approval in that way. Their marriage will follow God's will and not the promptings of lust. Let's every, let everything be done so as to advance God's honor. So something to think about, uh, Bishop Prick approval of the marriage, which could be done through the, the, the leaders and the priests and the presbyters right. and so forth. But churches are involved in marriages, very, very involved in marriages at this time. Um, and, and there's a couple things. One, the protection of people getting married for the purpose of lust. It's like they're just getting married because they want to have sex all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not a reason to get married. It's a horrible uh, reason. Yeah, so that won't sustain you very long. No. So when you look at it from this perspective, they are concerned about people marrying for wrong reasons, and they want the church to get behind young couples. That's what I'm seeing here. Mm-hmm. And bless the marriages. They want apostolic blessing, bishopric blessing, priesthood blessing on these couples. And in an age, and I don't want to get into this because I'm going to be writing a blog and so forth, but in an age where we're talking about all the blessing of marriages we shouldn't have, one of the things that I told you when you were driving here that it concerns me is we bless the newlywed couple, which he's pretty much saying to do, Mm -hmm. put your blessing on their marriage and pray that God blesses their marriage. What about the families that have been married for five to seven years with two, three kids? What about that family that's losing their sanity at just taking time and quality time to be together? What about what about the couple that's been married for 20 years that's become delusioned and disinterested? And the couple that's been married 30, 40 years, the thing they know everything about the other person and they've kind of lost the wonder of it. You know, we as a church, what I see here between a bishop and a bishop is get involved in helping marriages. While mm-hmm. we're talking about all the kind of marriages we shouldn't be blessing, which is good. We need to do it. Right. And we yeah. will do it. We need to address it. What about the marriages that need the blessing of its church leaders? I think this is something we need to be motivated more to. And again, we're going to be doing more on this soon. So stay tuned. I, this hobby horse will be around for a little bit. Right. But what do you see as his, his, his desire to see Polycarp get involved in marriages in the church and that the church should be getting behind them, not controlling them, but getting behind them and blessing them. Well, I think it comes down to any marriage done outside of the church, outside of the will of God, is is not a real covenant. A, a marriage is a covenant between a man and a wife with God. It's it's a covenant between each other and a covenant to God. You're saying, I will devote myself to this person. Mm. I agree to the 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 standards that, that Christ has set before before us in the scriptures. That's what it is, and it's a it's a powerful thing for the kingdom of God for a man and wife to be joined in unison for the kingdom of God. I think you, you look back at Adam and Eve in the garden. Eve was his 
helper, yep. his helpmate. Yep. I found one that is is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's it's you complete me. And I think in a marriage situation, I, I think this about my wife. We she completes me in a physical here sense. She's she's my other half. She helps me you know, to, to accomplish the things that we've got. If I was by myself, I would not be able to accomplish the things, especially ministry things without her. She, she's a compliment to me. She's yep. my helpmate. And together we are fused together. We are, we are bound into one flesh for the purpose of God. He, he says um, that, that let, let everything be done. So to advance God's honor. And he's talking in the context of marriage, marriage is something that when done right under the church's blessing, under, under right counsel through marriage counseling and, and, looking at people that, that have right relationship with Christ, these things can be a great thing in God's honor. But when we realize that most marriages don't do that, and they're married between two people that are unequally yoked, they're married, and the, 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 you start to take something that Jesus uses all throughout the New Testament as an example of of his love for his bride, his church, that you've got this marriage example that comes up all the time, and we are marrying things into it that are not covenantal, and we're breaking those things. And so it's, a, it's one thing to say, yes, this is a great method to, to advance the kingdom but it's also this this barrier this wall that prevents perverted marriages that are not done in the right way that are not covenants to god that are not joined in, in union between two believers and it prevents those kind of marriages into being a part of the church that end up being disunifying and causing yes. problems down the road and, and lead to divorce um the statistic rates are oh, through the roof with people outrageous. are not are not linked because if christ is not your your link then you have no solid foundation. And so it's kind of a both and here. He's saying this needs to be blessed and be a focal point because of how great it is for the kingdom, but it also needs to be something that we are deterring that is not holy union that will advance God's honor. Yeah, it's sacramental. A marriage is yep. sacramental. It reflects the glory, the advancement of Christ. So good marriages or better marriages equals a better message mm -hmm. because it, as Paul said, it's this is the mystery of Christ and his church. We as husbands and wives are reflecting in our marriage union, the love and the servitude between Christ and his church. We are the bride of Christ. Uh, we, we are, we are loved by him. He's coming to get us like a bridegroom coming for his bride. We're going to feast at his table. Mm -hmm. And so we long for that unity. We long for that connectivity with him in the physical bodily sense. And we get to experience elements of that in, in human marriages. And so if, if the marriages are good and blessed, then that's only going to enhance a gospel that spreads. The message will advance better when churches are filled with healthy marriages. Mm -hmm. And so the better the marriages, the better the message. It's symbols of Eden. It, it's beautiful Edenic mm -hmm. language. It's, and as you said, we, we, we are two people as a husband and wife becoming one flesh. We are, we are completing. It's not good that man be alone. And, and like, I mean, we're helpless, man. Like, I mean, we half the time, we don't even know where we're supposed to go. I mean, I, I have to look at a calendar. My wife doesn't tell me what's happening. I'd miss half your appointments. I'd probably miss the podcast today. Yeah. It, it takes. I ask my wife every <laughs> single day. So what's going on today? <laughs> like we need that. She in literally our rolls her eyes at me. But but that shows but but what that shows at Christ is that he doesn't have to have us. He wants us as his mm -hmm. bride, his church. We are his delight. We are his desire. We want he wants to share his kingdom, his goodness, his his possessions. Yep. He wants us to have these things. And so but if we have unhealthy marriages and we're no different than the pagans yep. as they were in that day. Uh, you know just 
throwaway marriages and, and treating women as second tier and that they're not important. Um, when you look at the sustainability of the community that they're dealing with, um, you find that there's not com companionship. It's, and yes, the Bible and the New Testament and all that we see in the church fathers is that the wife is submitting to the husband as Christ to the church, but there's a servitude where the man is serving the wife the way that Christ serves his church and gave himself for it. That culture in that day would never have said a man would never do that. He right. would never go that low for a woman. Well, in Christianity, they do. And it's never saying that she's a lesser creation. Never. 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 Yeah. Submission doesn't mean lesser. Uh, no or, more than was Christ less of God by submitting to the Father. Right. He wasn't less God the, in doing that. The value is no different. It, the, the value is the same. It's functionally because God was doing a redemptive plan at the submission of Christ. Nevertheless, not your will, my will, Jesus said to the Father. Mm -hmm to bring about the beautiful redemptive message we had. It took the submission of the son to the will of the father, the function, all of that's going on. The same thing, the marriage is putting out the same concept. It's reflecting that same imagery of the gospel message. Yep. So folks, what a beautiful letter to Polycarp. And, and there's so much here that I wish just, just in his farewell, he says, greetings to everyone of you personally, to the widow, uh, Epatropus with her children and her whole family. Greetings to my dear. So, I mean, he gets into a greeting of a lot of people in the church that he knew personally, and he expects Polycarp to carry these greetings right. to the one uh, greetings to the one who is to be chosen to go to Syria, which he's re referring to his replacement as a Bishop. He, he encourages Polycarp to get a council together and to pick the next successor mm -hmm. because the next successor has to be appointed by other bishops. And, Grace be ever with him and with Polycarp who sends him. I bid you farewell as always in our God, Jesus Christ, which again, he has no problem calling Jesus Christ God. May you abide in him and share in the divine unity and be under God's care. Greetings to Alci, who means a great deal to me, which we don't know much after right, that. Yeah. Farewell in the Lord. This is his goodbye. This is his goodbye to his friend. Mm -hmm. um, and and also trusting that he's going to handle matters of Antioch for him. He's going to help appoint, right. also distribute these letters. He gives instruction, but he's clearly hanging on to remembering any name he could. He refused to name docetism names. But he names everybody else. But he names everybody else. Yep. And he wants them to share in the divine unity of mm -hmm. the Father, Son, Holy Spirit with the church. This is a beautiful letter, beautiful letters in all, all seven. If you miss the other two, please go back uh, and listen to those. We have those live streamed for you as well. Please go back and, and pay attention to the detail of these things. We highlighted, folks, read them. Just read them. Read yep. these letters. They're available for you. We highlighted just main things and talking points. But there's so much here for us to be enriched by, to be encouraged by, to be edified in. And I hope that you will take the time to reflect on these challenges from a church standpoint, from a personal standpoint, from a marital standpoint, from a friendship standpoint. These are real people that went through real problems and he died a real martyrdom's death. Yep. And we ought to honor these saints for their sacrifice, for their gifts and learn from them. And for you and I here on facts, and this group that listens and follows our pod podcast or you're following on YouTube live, we want you 
not to just become complacent in your Christianity. Take guys like Ignatius and Polycarp. See how they live their lives, their prayer life, their sacrifice, their encouragement, their posture mm -hmm. in the midst of obstacles. These are things that we can learn from in such great detail and use for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ in the church, in our home, in our personal walks with him. Yep. And find you somebody to do that with. A, yes. a, a he says this, Polycarp, he says, share your hard training together, wrestle together, run together, suffer together, go to bed together, get up together as God's stewards, assess, uh, assessors, and assistants. Find somebody to take this information with, wrestle it out with, do it together in community, in communion with other people, and see where it takes you in your Christian faith. And I, I guarantee you, if you take this stuff that we're, we're going to read these letters, it, it will bring you closer to Christ because it has for us. Oh, absolutely. Definitely has, has changed our perspective and has encouraged us and created so many other side sections right. that we've been working on. Well, as always, we thank you for tuning into this podcast. It means the world to us. A lot of feedback lately. Uh, I've received a lot of emails, even Facebook message. More episodes to come. We're going to bring out... The next thing that Tyler and I are going to do, we'll make this announcement here, is we're going to actually... One of the requests, high requests that we got was that we share our journey to Anglicanism. Uh, and let me just go ahead and put a precursor on that. We're not going to share the story because we believe every single one of you should follow our journey. Uh, but it's been a journey. It's been yes. a long journey, years of study and reflection. Um, and we want to share that with our followers because it's not a rapid thing. It wasn't an overnight thing. It was, a, it was probably a three, four year thing uh, for both of us. And we decided after talking to each other, that as many requests as come in on that, we will gladly do that for you. We will share our journey to Anglicanism. Uh, it's letters like this that had a big part right, yeah. in it. But um, we realize not everybody that listens to this is Anglican, and we don't expect you to be. And that's not our goal. We don't want just a bunch of Anglican listeners. That would be counterproductive because we want to be a blessing to the church broadly. Right. But we do have a journey, and we appreciate those that have taken interest in both our lives. And our next episode together will be covering our road and our journey to the Anglican church. And we'll share that with you shortly, but as always, we appreciate your support. Uh, we appreciate those that have come behind us and, and, and shared these videos continue to do that. If you're listening on YouTube, make sure you like, and subscribe to our channel. It's new information comes out. Also, if you're listening to this on the facts podcast, whether that's Apple or Google, or you're listening to it on Spotify, make sure you subscribe and get, all of our new episodes that come out so you get notifications for that. That would mean the world to us. Grace and peace to you. God bless. We trust the Lord will bless you and keep you in his grace. Grace and peace.